Thank you for the opportunity of being with you. I enjoyed singing the song, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. No doubt you are aware that when you look at an Adventist church hymnal, when you look at the song title, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine, if you look at the right, on the right you have the individual that wrote the music for the song, and on the left you have the person who wrote the words to the song. Now you'll notice that the song, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine, the music to that song was written by Mrs. Joseph Knapp. You may not know much of her background. Mrs. Knapp's husband was the president of the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. In the 1870s and 1880s, 1890s, latter part of the uh, 19th century, it was the largest corporation in the United States. They employed thousands and thousands of people. One day, after Mrs. Knapp had written the music for that song, she invited the blind hymn writer, Fanny Crosby, to her home. And Mrs. Knapp sat down, she was a pianist, and she sat down and began to play the piano. And she said to Fanny Crosby, what does this music suggest to you? And Fanny Crosby's mind just worked so quickly, so sharply. God gave her that gift, and she said, Mrs. Knapp, your husband is the president of the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company, but my Heavenly Father deals with assurance. That song suggests to me, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And Fanny Crosby sat down at the table and wrote out the words to that song just in a few minutes, a gift that God gave to the church, and we have been singing it ever since. I thought you'd like to know, as my friend Paul Harvey says, the rest of the story on that hymn. If you were with us this, after, this morning, we talked about an acronym that helps take patients from illness to wellness. It helps take them from brokenness to wholeness. We call that acronym PASS. They are four spiritual modalities that are a channel that, takes, that take human beings from the brokenness of their life to health. And we were looking at them. One is prayer. We talked about how to implement prayer as a spiritual therapy. We looked at attitude, and we talked about uh, there are two sets of emotions. There's grief and anxiety and fear and how they break down the life's forces. And then we looked at the other side of love and courage and faith and how they build them up. Tonight, I'm going to talk to you about the scriptures and how the Bible is what a God's agency that's therapeutic. It's a God's pharmacology, the principles in God's Word. Now, I don't say that in any way disparagingly of pharmacology or drugs today. At times, they're necessary, and I openly acknowledge that. But the one does not predispose or predicate that the other is not necessary. I want to look at the Bible and how the Bible is therapeutic, how it helps to heal our mind and heal our emotions, and consequently, how that helps to heal our bodies. Because the mind and the body are so intimately connected that if there is fear and grief and anxiety, if there is bitterness and resentment, that can elevate the blood pressure, it can uh, create higher levels of cholesterol, it can create uh, various stomach secretions that lead to stomach ulcers. The mind and the body are so intimately connected that if as a medical practitioner or a paramedical practitioner, if as a physician or a doctor, a physician or a dentist or a physical therapist or an occupational therapist or a pharmacologist, 
If you understand how to apply the Bible in therapy to your patients, it can make a dramatic difference. A number of years ago, a young lad by the name of Bobby, 10 years old, developed a brain tumor. And the tumor became so large that it was malignant, could not be treated. And so it was necessary for the surgeon to operate on Bobby. He did. The surgery was fairly successful, but yet there was after-treatment that needed to be uh, administered. And in the after-treatment, Bobby developed a swelling in the brain, and there was necessary to take fluid off the brain because of that swelling. And the aftercare was incredibly painful, and Dr. Brown was treating Bobby, and it was necessary to inject him and take fluid portions off the brain. And Bobby was brought into Dr. Brown's office, and Dr. Brown said to Bobby, Bobby, I want you to know that although the operation was painful, and, but this is going to be pretty painful. This aftercare treatment is going to be painful. And he was trying to reassure this little 10-year-old boy. And Bobby looked up at him and he said, Doc, I know that you're going to have to take the fluid off my brain, and I know it's going to be quite painful. But, uh, Doctor, do you mind if I say the 23rd Psalm when you are administering treatment to me? I think I would be more calm, Doc. And this little 10-year-old boy was brought up in a Christian home, and he began to repeat the 23rd Psalm, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. Though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, thou art with me, for I'll fear no evil. And as he began to say it, he said to the doctor, Now, doctor, can you help me with it? Can you say it with me? Because I think I forgot some of it, doctor. Now, Dr. Brown referenced in his brain his Sunday school, he wasn't brought up as an Adventist. I mean, every Adventist physician has memorized hundreds of psalms. I mean, I understand that. But he wasn't, you see. And so, he, I mean, you must have Bible memorization here at a prestigious university as part of therapy. I mean, you are learning Bible promises as part of therapy. I mean, you must have a class of memorizing Bible promises that they are the leaves of the tree of life that you administer to your patients. I mean, I'm sure. But anyway, Dr. Brown didn't have that class. And so, he missed it out on it. And so, as a result of that, he became embarrassed, and he stumbled. And so Bobby looked at one of the nurses and said, could you help me? Well, pretty soon everybody evacuated in the room. They were too embarrassed you know, to help the lad. Dr. Brown wrote about this experience later. And he said, I called myself a Christian physician, but I really did not know the Word of God. I didn't know promises to help my patients with. And a little 10-year-old boy embarrassed me in my office and I went back and started a scripture memorization project. I put tapes in my car to listen to the Word of God because I sensed that there were many of my patients that needed the comfort of God's Word. I began to sense that God's Word was a therapy and a medicine. And Dr. Brown said that the meeting with a 10-year-old boy changed his medical practice and changed his life. The ancient prophet Ezekiel speaks of healing. And he speaks of it in Ezekiel chapter 47. This passage sent me on a study of the healing remedy that there is in God's Word. And so tonight we want to look first at the healing remedy in God's Word. Then we want to ask ourselves, why is the Word of God so potent for, potent for emotional healing that contributes to physical healing? And then we want to ask ourselves, how can we apply these principles in our own personal Bible study? And second, how can we apply them in our patient's life? So we go on a journey of the Word of God. I'll spend about 
30 minutes on this, and then we'll conclude this section, spend the last 20 minutes, and give you a chance to ask some questions. Ezekiel chapter 47 is our passage. In Ezekiel chapter 47, God pictures to the prophet Ezekiel a river of life, of healing, that flows through the land. And coming to the 12th verse, describing this healing river that brings life wherever it goes. Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 12. Along the bank of the river, on this side and that, will grow all kinds of trees used for food. It almost reminds you of Revelation chapter 22 in the river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God and the, the tree of life growing on either side of the river. It's a very similar uh, prediction. Along the bank of the river, verse 12, on this side and that will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month. Sounds like the tree of life. Because their water flows from the sanctuary, their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. Well, that text prompted a study. And I began to think in my mind, what is Ezekiel talking about? What is this tree growing by the rivers of the water that grows and its leaves are for medicine? What are those leaves that are like medicine? I remembered Psalm 1, for example. Blessed are they that walk not in the counsel of the ungodly, but whose mind is stayed on the law of God. He will be like a tree planted by the rivers of the waters. Whatever he does won't prosper. I was reminded as well of Revelation 22. What are these leaves that are for medicine? If you look at Revelation 22, it's rather strange. Revelation, the 22nd chapter. The tree of life. But in Revelation 22, God shows John a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 21, the new heavens and the new earth. There is no more sickness, sorrow, suffering, or death. And Revelation 22, he showed me a pure river of the water of life. Seems like Ezekiel 47 to me. Clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb. In the middle of the street of its street, and on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bare twelve fruits. That is certainly Ezekiel's tree. Each tree yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Very confusing text. Why in the new earth do you have a tree planted there for the healing of the nations? When Jesus comes, this mortal shall put on what? Immortality. When Jesus comes, there is no more sickness, suffering, and death. Why do you have a tree for the healing of the nations? I went to my Greek New Testament and looked up the word healing. And the word healing is a root word therapy. So that matches Ezekiel 47 verse 12 when the leaves are for medicine. So these leaves are medicinal. They have healing properties in them. When our bodies are changed and we are restored into the image of Christ and we ascend into heaven, we will not have the completeness of love. We still will grow through all ages of eternity, won't we? Because Christian growth is not something that is static, it's something that is dynamic. So all through the heavenly ages, we're going to grow in love for God. We're going to grow in our faith. We're going to grow in our hope and our courage. We'll never come to a place where we can say, I have enough faith, I have enough love, I have enough hope. It's growing. So here, these leaves of the tree of life aid us in this enriched 
spiritual growth. Could it be, though? What does it mean that we are eating these leaves of the tree of life? Could it be that the tree of life has leaves that are medicinal and those leaves hang over the walls of the tree of life and they actually extend to the Loma Linda campus? Ellen White makes a comment on both Ezekiel 47 verse 12 and Revelation chapter 22 that puts everything for me in perspective. And she says, commenting on this passage in the leaves of the tree were for the leaves in the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, commenting on that precise passage, Ministry of Healing, page 122. She says, So with all the promises of God's word, in them he is speaking to us individually, speaking as directly as if we could listen to his voice. It is in these promises that Christ communicates his grace and power. They are leaves from the tree which is for the healing of the nations. What? are the leaves of the tree that are for the healing of the nations, the promises of God's word. So throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity, as we literally partake of the fruits of the tree of life and as we eat of its leaves, it is a symbol. Certainly, it's a very real tree of life. Certainly, the fruits are real, the leaves are real. But there's a deeper spiritual meaning it's a symbol of our grasping and eating and internalizing God's word. Thy words were found, Jeremiah says, chapter 15, verse 16, and I did eat them. And they are the joy and rejoicing of my life. Now listen, they are leaves. That's the promises from the tree of life, which is for the healing of the nations. Received, assimilated, there to be the strength of character, the inspiration and sustenance of life. Nothing else can have such healing power. Nothing else can have such healing power. The word of God is healing power to your patients. Not to share with them the promises of God's word is to hold back one of the greatest sources of spiritual power. Now tonight I'm going to explain to you why that's true, both from a biblical and a psychological standpoint, and then we're going to talk about how to do it. But listen, nothing else can have such healing power. Nothing besides can impart the courage and faith which gives vital energy to the whole being. Why does the Bible have such healing power? Because as I understand the promises of God's word, it brings to my heart a sense of acceptance and love and courage and faith. That brings a vital healing power through my being. So as I come to Jesus in faith, the brain sends positive chemical endorphins through the body which produce healing. If it is true, as Ellen White says, that nine-tenths of the diseases that men suffer from have their origin in the mind. Now notice it does not say that nine-tenths of the diseases that men suffer who are in the mind. They are not imaginary diseases. They are real diseases, but where is the origin? The origin of the disease is in the mind. Why? A woman goes through the trauma of a divorce. She becomes so bitter and so angry at her husband, because let's suppose this woman is 48 years old. She's been married, we'll say, for 28 years. She has three children, and by now the children are 21, 22, and 25. They're out of the home. She's been looking forward to a time now with her husband. He runs off with somebody that's 15 years younger. 
He leaves her. She, the children are out of the home. It's empty nest syndrome. She's depressed. She's discouraged. She's defeated. She feels so down. She cries herself to sleep at night. She's angry inside. She's so bitter that, the, that her stomach is in knots. And she comes into your office when she comes in. She's got a stomach ulcer. Now, it's necessary for you with the physical elements of science to do whatever you can to help that woman with the stomach ulcer. But my question to you is, if you don't deal with the bitterness, are you going to see her nine months later? Are you going to see her a year and a half later? Why is it that the Bible is so powerful in producing healing? Here's a man that's the president of a corporation in L.A., and he comes to see you because he's just had a heart attack. He's not changed anything in his lifestyle. And he comes to see you because he really needs some medicine so that he can continue in his lifestyle. Are Seventh-day Adventist physicians different? Will you be able to help him with lifestyle practices? of exercise and diet? Will you also be able to share principles that help to reduce the stress in his life from God's Word? Will you be able to help to put this man's life in perspective? Because unless he gets his life in perspective, drugs may manage the disease, but they're not going to help him in the long run unless the fundamental problem is going to be solved. Some of you went through, when you went through your teens had acne. And the solution to acne is just to take your fingernail and just to pull off every pimple. You do that enough and you're not going to have any, right? There may be some other solutions, like hot and cold treatments, like drinking water like crazy, like refraining from greasy foods. It may not solve all the problem, but I'll tell you one thing. Gonna, you're going to have a lot less if you follow the laws of health than if you didn't, right? Trying to cure symptoms without trying to cure fundamental diseases and deal with the basic issues is, try, is like trying to cure acne by picking pimples. It just isn't going to work in the long run. And so as a godly, Christ-centered Christian physician, you look at the whole person. And scripture is therapy. It's therapeutic. Why? I'd like to suggest three reasons. First, that in the Bible, we discover the unconditional love of God. I have had scores of people that have come to me. I think of a woman that came to me, couldn't sleep at night, broken spirit, depressed, discouraged, her husband had gone off with somebody else. And we sat and talked. And I said to her, I am so sorry for what happened to you. And I don't mean to trivialize it at all. It's brought you incredible pain. May I read something in Scripture that might be helpful to you, that maybe God put in the Bible just for you? She said, Pastor, please read it. And I turned to the, in the Bible to Isaiah, the 54th, chapter. And I said, I know that just going through this divorce, you have felt a lot of shame. 
And you probably have felt a great deal of guilt. And you probably have said, why me, Lord? Isaiah 54, verse 4, Do not fear, for you'll not be ashamed, nor be disgraced. For you'll not be put to shame, you'll forget the shame of your youth, not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. He's called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit. She began to cry. She put her head in her hands and she began to sob. And I said, may I share with you something that has revolutionized my life about the unconditional love of God? You see, it says in the text, for your maker shall be your husband. Why is it that God gives us human relationships? Why does God give you a father, a mother, a sister, a brother? Now, what I'm going to share with you in the next two minutes might be worth more than anything you've learned this week. There is somebody sitting here that you're going to get some help for something you've been struggling with in two minutes that's going to be amazing. You see, there's somebody sitting here that was abused as a child. There's somebody sitting here that somebody has, de has defiled you. In any group this big, I know there's at least one person like that. More and more, when you are Christian physicians dealing with people, they're going to come into your office and they have been abused, either sexually, psychologically, or some other way. And here is a psychological concept that is based in the Word of God that I have found the most helpful in all my counseling with people that have come to me that have been broken, bruised, and hurt. And it's simply this. The scripture says, God is your husband. Now, the Bible gives many different descriptions of God. For example, the Bible says, as a father pitieth his children, so I pity you. The Bible says, as a mother comforteth her children, so I comfort you. The Bible says, God is a friend that sticks closer than a what? Brother. Why did God give us human relationships in the beginning? Why did God make an Adam and Eve, give then Adam and Eve children, sons and daughters? Why did he give, make brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and aunts and uncles? Why is there not one gender through the entire human race? Now, in heaven, we have angels. Are there male and female angels? I think not. In, on the other planets, are there male and female like Earth? We don't know for sure, but probably not. Pro most likely, with the creation of the human race, God did something special. Follow me closely. Why? Why men, why women, why husbands, why wives, why fathers, why mothers, why sisters, why brothers, why aunts, why uncles? For this reason. In every human relationship, in the ideal setting, my father represents a facet of God's love that I can't get any other way. My mother represents a facet of God's love that I can't get any other way. My mother's love in the ideal situation teaches me something about God's love. God allows me to have a father to teach me something about my heavenly father. God allows me to have a mother to teach me something about my, 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 the, the tenderness of God. God allows me to have a friend to teach me something that he is my friend that sticks closer than a brother. 
God allows me to have uh, the extended family to teach me about his love. God allows me to have a brother or a sister. Now the question then becomes, if the purpose of all human relationships in the ideal is that every relationship, like a multifaceted diamond, reflects some aspect of God's love, what if my father is abusive? What if my mother does, is, is harsh and not understanding? What if my sister, if I understand the fundamental purpose is to reveal God, if there's a break in the chain on the earthward side, God makes that up with his own divine love in one of two ways, in either bypassing the system that he has established and ministering directly to your heart his healing love, or he brings somebody else into your life to meet that love deficit and that love need. So when you have been abused or defiled, on your knees you say, God, I consciously forgive the person that failed to represent your loving character. I consciously forgive them. And Lord, I accept that for me, you will bypass all that abuse and you will pour into my heart the healing love of Christ. Why is the Bible so healing? Why is the Bible so liberating? Because in it, I am bathed in the atmosphere of the unconditional love of God. As I read the promises of God, I see his care and love to me. One day I was holding an evangelistic meeting and I was in a, a city in the south and a young woman was going to be baptized she was in her 30s her eyes were just sparkling I mean, she was just radiating and I said to the pastor I said if there's ever a picture of a woman who knows Christ it's that woman she must have had a, had a wonderful upbringing a great Christian home and a great life he said Mark you've got to meet her and so as I met in this woman and I learned her story it was this she was married at 17 years old had her first child when she was 18 her second child when she was 19 when she was 20, her husband divorced her. Didn't want anything to do with her. And so she decided that she'd pour her life into her children, which she did for 15, 16 years. By the time she was 36, she had not dated anybody for 16 years because she said, I'm not going to date anymore because I really want to put my time into my children. She brought them to school. She picked them up after school. She got them piano lessons. She worked overtime for these children. By now, as she became in her mid to late 30s. One girl was 16, the other was 17. Maria, not her real name, but I'll use that name, Maria began to date when she was in her mid-30s. Very attractive, intelligent woman. And she met a guy and had dated him for about four or five months and felt that she could trust him and often he would come over to her little apartment and they'd eat supper and her girls would be there and so forth. Sometimes she had to work late and she'd work till six, seven o'clock and he'd go over at four. What she did not know is they had sexually abused one girl. The one girl was so afraid she wouldn't tell the other girl, and then he sexually abused the other girl. The other thing that she didn't know is that he had a full-blown case of HIV. So he infected both girls. When that became apparent, she became bitter, angry, and resentful. I mean, who would not in that kind of a situation? She said, I put 16 years into my girls my whole life. God, what in the world are you doing? She became so angry, she could not function, she could not sleep. Uh, she became a bitter, sour woman. One night, miraculously, she walked into a meeting, I was holding, and I talked about Jesus. And I talked about the pain of the human heart. And whatever pain you're going through, Jesus can heal that pain. He can, he can, he can, he can take the broken pieces of your life and restore them. 
We didn't trivialize pain. We didn't make believe pain didn't exist. But we talked about a Christ that's bigger than our pain, a Christ that's bigger than our problems, a Christ that puts the broken pieces of our lives together. She went out of that meeting that night and began a journey. And I would be less than honest if I told her all her problems were solved that night. They were not. But she began a journey of healing. In the process of that journey, she knew she had to do something that would be incredibly difficult to do. She knew she had to forgive the person that infected her daughters because she knew that unless she forgave him, that she would suffer the rest of her life with mental and emotional neurosis that would be translated into physical sickness. She knew that she had to heal, that, that the only way she could heal was as Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them that they don't know what they're doing. So she told us the story. She said, I decided. Now, by this time, the guy, a number of years had gone by, and the guy was in the hospital. He was in a hospice, actually, dying. She went to the hospice. And she said, I walked in. I felt so angry. But contrary to how I felt, I was going to go and tell him that I forgave him. Forgiveness is not condoning the action of another toward you. Forgiveness is releasing another from your condemnation because Christ released you from his condemnation. So forgiveness is not justifying the behavior of another. It is releasing them from your condemnation. She said, Pastor, I went and sat on the edge of the bed and I looked at him. And I said, you know, your actions have caused me incredible pain and they've affected my girl's life forever. And I can't deny that. But I want you to know, in spite of what you have done, I forgive you. Said, she said, I began to weep, and I said, I forgive you. She said, the hardest words that ever came out of my mouth. But she said, when I left the room that night, there was like a burden that was rolled off me. And pastor, that forgiveness was the beginning of my healing. Why is the Bible like medicine? Why is it so powerful? Because it shows me first, in Scripture I discover the unconditional love of God. Second, in Scripture, I find the unconditional forgiveness of God. In Scripture, I am forgiven so I can forgive. In Scripture, I'm released from bondage. And thirdly, in Scripture, I find unconditional acceptance. I find that this God that loves me, this God that forgives me, God does not say to me, I forgive you, therefore, but, but I can never have a relationship with you again. There are some people that I've forgiven in my life, but I sure don't want to have a relationship with them. I'm sorry. No. But it's the truth, isn't it? There may be somebody that wrongs you, and you forgive them. But you're not too happy to go out to suffer with them tomorrow night. Right? Because that only happened to me. When God loves me unconditionally, when God forgives me, God accepts me. He gives me that warm embrace, and I can be secure in his presence. Scripture is therapeutic. As you begin to share with people the unconditional love of God, the forgiveness of God, and the joy of God, you begin to share the promises of God, healing flows into their life. How can you help people make Bible study more interesting? A person comes into your office. What can you do? What can you do? As you begin to talk to them, you, ask, you take them through a process of questions. And you remember this morning we talked about those questions. You say to them, when did you first 
notice these headaches beginning? Do you see a, an event that triggered these headaches? When did you first begin to notice this tightness in your stomach? Can you think of anything that happened in your life, any traumatic event that might have caused some of this? So you're doing a medical history. You're asking questions. As things develop, you share different treatment possibilities. Well, here's one of the ways we may treat it. Here's another way we may treat it. And you begin to describe those options. In the context of that discussion, it is often helpful to say, as a Christian physician, I would like to share with you a biblical, may I share with you a biblical insight that may be helpful. Often, your patients coming to you know that you're a Christian physician. That's why they came in the first place. Because they are expecting you to be different. And if you're not, you disappoint them. If you're not, you let them down. So may I share with you something that's been helpful to me? Often I will say to a person, may I share with you something that's helpful to me? And in the back of my mind, there are hundreds of Bible promises that I might share. For example, I'll give you, I'll give you just two or three. Let's suppose I'm talking to a person, and I detect that they have gone through bankruptcy, and that bankruptcy has created a nervous anxiety where they're not sleeping and they have insomnia. I say to them, I don't want to in any way trivialize what you're going through. And I think it's really important that as medical practitioners, we do not downplay the pain of another and simply slip them a verse. You understand what I'm saying? But we rather provide something for them to think about spiritually. And so I might say to the person, may I share with you something that's very helpful to me? In Philippians, the fourth chapter, in the 19th verse, the Bible says, but my God shall supply all your need. And John, you have told me that you have some big needs, some incredible needs, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. I don't know how God may want to solve and settle the issue of bankruptcy that you've gone through. I'm going to give you the best advice I can medically. I'm going to prescribe for you walking and exercise to help relieve your anxiety. I'm going to prescribe to you some warm baths and there may be some medication that I can give you as well, but I'm going to write some things out for you to do that I think are going to be very helpful to you that I'd like you to do. And, um, you know, you've indicated to me that when you went through the bankruptcy that now you've begun drinking a lot more. And I want to share with you the reality of the fact that that may mask some symptoms, but ultimately it's going to make you less effective in making decisions, and I need to be able to tell you that as a physician. You've indicated to me as well that you feel so nervous and, and anxious that uh, you've gained 30 pounds in overeating. Let's try to look at some of these, some physical things you can do. Let's look at a strategy. So as we're sitting there talking, then I might say to them, look, let me as well share with you a principle from God's word that might be helpful. My God shall supply all your needs. John, there is nothing like faith that will help to calm your troubled nerves. May I write that text out for you? And I'd like to give it to you. So that is one approach. Another approach that I sometimes will ask a person is a question that I'll ask them is, 
John, did you have a religious upbringing at all in your background? Or I might ask them, where does your faith, do you have, do you have any kind of faith that would help you in a situation like this? Where do you go for help when you feel really stressed out? Where do you go for help? And if a person says, I go to God, then that opens the door a little bit broader. But the probing questions that draw out spirituality rather than superimposing judgment upon people enable spirituality to open natural for them. Um, the text that I shared with you this morning, Isaiah 26, verse 3, that will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind has stayed on thee, is very helpful. I have also found, um, I remember one night, there was a pastor's son. Pastor's son had, um, when, when he was going to Seventh Adventist Church School, by the time he was in the eighth grade, he was using drugs in the Adventist Church School. Son of one of our pastors. Um, by the time he was uh, second year in high school, he was drinking heavily. By the time he was a junior in high school, he was living with a girl and had left home. Um, when I held evangelistic meetings with his dad, uh, the police came and busted the pastor's parsonage because the kid had a drug party during the time. So, I mean, this was really bad stuff. I mean, it was really bad. A number of years later, I was holding an evangelistic meeting, knew the family real well in one of the American cities, and I noticed this young man came back, sat in the back row, long hair, had the girl he was living with, uh, not uh, married to, uh, he was strung out on drugs, uh, drinking heavily, and uh, came to the meeting. And uh, just because I had kind of befriended him and we had been friends with the family and he wanted to see me, said to the girl at the end of the meeting, hey, let's go up and talk to the preacher. I know him. He's a friend of the family. The girl said, nothing doing. And I was counseling with people down in the front. I looked out at the corner of my eye and I saw him halfway up the aisle. And the girl took him by the hand and started pulling him in the opposite direction. And I knew if I had him, I'd have him for about two minutes and that's all, three minutes. I believe that there is such healing power in the Bible that, that it's like leaves from the tree of life that if you plant a text in a person's mind, the Holy Spirit can use that over and over and over again to provide emotional and physical and psychological healing. Finally, he came up and sat in the front row, and there were people all around me, and I knew that I had very short time with him. I put my hand on his shoulder, and I simply said to him, I called him by name, and I said, you know, you may be thinking right now, I've ruined my life. I'm strung out on drugs. I, 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 I just have ruined my life totally. I want to share with you just one Bible text. And I turned to Joel, the second chapter. I had never used it in this way before. And uh, Joel, chapter 2, verse 25, had about two minutes with him. Our topic tonight is the Bible as therapy. Joel, chapter 2, verse 25, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, the chewing locust, my great army, which... I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise in the name of the Lord your God who's dealt well, wondrously with you. I said, I want to change it. I'll restore the years that alcohol has bombed your mind, that drugs have destroyed and made you paranoia. I'll, 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 I'll restore the years that alcohol and drugs and profligate living is eaten away. And one day you will eat in plenty. One day you'll be satisfied. One day you'll play, praise the name of the Lord. I said to this young man, two minutes. How does God restore your mind? What does he do? How does God restore the years? The Bible says, God said, I'll restore the years. Can you go back and live those years over again? How does God restore years? What does it mean in the Bible when it says, God says, I'll restore the years? What it means is this, that in Christ and by Christ and through Christ, God will give you better years in the future than you had in the past. And the years in the future are so better than the ones you had in the past that the ones in the past will no longer be the dominant influence in your life. 
So I said to this young man, God's going to restore everything that alcohol has taken away, everything that drugs have taken away. He has told me years later, now this experience happened in the 1970s. Since that time, he and I were in very close contact. I, I continued to pray with him. I urged him. He went on and got his GED. He finished his GED. Went on to Andrews University, got a Master's of Divinity. Became a very popular evangelist in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. If I named him, you'd know him. But if he wants to tell you his past, he needs to tell you, not me. But, um, and he does. He tells the story publicly sometimes. But he is one of our more popular evangelists, traveling all over America, leading people to Christ. I met him in a meeting, and he has told me since then, he said, Mark, that text. He said, I went back, and I still had problems with alcohol, I still had problems with drugs, I still had problems with the girl I was living with at the time, but he said, the text kept going on in my mind, I'll restore the years, I'll restore the years, I'll restore the years of alcohol I've eaten, I'll restore the years of drugs. He said, Mark, that was like medicine for me, that was like therapy for me. I grasped the text, I internalized it, I believed it by faith, and it transformed my whole life. You can share the Bible as therapy. The Bible is therapy. Now, there's a method that I've been using to study the Bible that I call VIM. If you want to put vitality into your Bible study, if you really want to have a new experience with God in Bible study, I call it VIM. I think VIM is a word, even. My wife asked me, what, do you, what is VIM? I said, VIM and vigor. You know, VIM is when I get excited when I'm preaching, I go like this. That's what VIM is. You know? <laughs> VIM is vitality. If you want to put VIM in your Bible study, vitality, excitement, First, you visualize. Second, you identify, and then you meditate. For example, first you visualize. I read Mark chapter 4 about Jesus in the storm, and Jesus going in the boat. The night is calm. I see the stars twinkling in the sky. I watch the moon shimmering off the, the placid lake. I, uh, I see in my mind that boat going across tranquil. Then I watch as the wind lashes the waves in fury. I watch as the boat goes up and down, up and down. I see in my mind the wind blowing the sail. I watch as the disciples have the wind come in their face and they're dripping from head to toe. I see those soaking wet disciples. So the first thing you do is you visualize. I visualize the woman coming to Jesus. I see her desperately through the crowd. I imagine what it must have been like for her to have an issue of blood for 10 years and have a perpetual menstrual cycle that she is just totally drained. And I say, what must that have been like? I see the demoniacs in my mind and I watch the disciples run. So you visualize the story, second you identify. I identify with the person who is in the boat, the disciples. What must, I, what must they have felt like? And third, I meditate on how that applies to me. I see the disciples in the boat. I watch the waves. I imagine what they must have felt like in the dark going down. And then I meditate on it and I say, Lord, you stood in the midst of that boat and you said, peace be still. Lord, my stomach is kind of like those waves. It's going up and down. I'm really nervous. I'm nervous about my kids. I'm nervous about my finances. I'm nervous about this or that. I've got so much anxiety. And I can identify with those anxious, troubled disciples in the boat. They thought they were going down. And a lot of times in my life, Lord, I feel like I'm going down. I identify with them. But Lord, I identify with you when you say, peace be still. So you visualize it, you identify, you, 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 you identify with it, and then you meditate on it and you apply it to your life. I think I, I see the crowd on the hillside of Galilee. I watch Jesus, he breaks the bread. I think of what it must have felt like to be hungry, and I remember when I was in Brazil and I didn't eat for three days and I was lost in the jungles. I remember those pangs of hunger. And then I identify. I say, Lord, you broke the bread and met their needs. Lord, I know you can meet the needs. I know you can meet my needs today. See, when you read scripture, it's not how much you read. It's rather 
visualizing the passage, identifying with the people in the passage, meditating on the passage in your own life. So we teach people who are, who are, who are nervous and anxious and troubled. We teach our patients who are worried, who are stressed out, who are bitter. We teach them how to grasp the promises of God. And we see miraculous things happen to them. I've been working with a number of physicians recently, sharing these kind of concepts. And what is happening is remarkable. There is one physician who now, he's in private practice, and he puts a little sign in his office. And this is what the sign says, and what's happening is remarkable. This little sign that says this. It says, thank you for coming to the office today. I will do everything I can to get you well. I'm committed to your health. In this office on Tuesday nights at 7 o'clock, we have a Bible study for those who'd like to, to, to delve into the deeper peace in God's Word. If you'd like to come, please be my guest. That's all he does. Puts it in his office. He has 15 to 20 people every Tuesday night that drop in. And he studies with them these principles from the Bible. And when he's talking to people in the office, sometimes he'll say, you know, we have, I noticed that you are indicating to me that you may be a little anxious or troubled about such and such. Uh, you've gone through uh, some real difficult times. Your son has died. Uh, your, your, your wife has left you. Uh, you've, gone, you've had trouble with finance. If you want to come on Tuesday nights, I'm more than happy to have you. That's all he says. Another one of my physician's friends fit, has, for the last seven years, fed people every Tuesday night. And he has the leaders of the city coming to study the Bible. I was down at one of his Bible studies. And, uh, and he has fed people for the last seven years on Wednesday nights, and he has 60 to 70 coming out, a physician. And he, at first they were going to restaurants, and now he has the ladies of the church prepare them a wonderful vegetarian meal. And his practice has become an opportunity to help people heal. Now notice, the medical... You see, it's not that you... It's not that you use spirituality as a hook to, quote, get them to become Advents. But it's rather you recognize that human beings are whole. They're physical, mental, and spiritual. And you integrate spiritual modalities in, and some amazing things will begin to happen. Prayer is a therapy. Biblical counseling that helps people have an attitude adjustment is a therapy. The scriptures are a therapy. Apply Bible promises and share God's word discreetly, kindly, and lovingly. And you will have incredible therapeutic results in healing. A Sabbath, we're going to talk about service. And we're going to talk about a moving presentation on the parable of the Good Samaritan. We're going to pause here. And uh, I know you are busy. I respect your time. And uh, some of you may have to go very shortly. I'm going to spend 15 or 20 minutes, and you may have questions about some of the things I've been discussing. You may have questions, but I want to broaden it much, much broader than that. World work. What's happening in different places in the Seventh Adventist Church? My wife and I just came back from China, for example, where I met with Adventist leaders in China. You might want to know what's happening in the former Soviet Union. You might want to happen happening Adventist initiatives with HIV in, in Africa. You may want to know about world work. You may have a Bible text that you're troubled with. And, you might want to ask uh, about that text. If I don't know, I'll be honest, and I'll tell you I don't know. But I probably will be able to give you some resources that you can go home and look up. Uh, so you may have some questions about what we've been talking about the last few days, about the world work of Adventists, about a Bible text, or about something in your own personal life spiritually. And I'm happy to spend a few moments answering some questions. So any questions that you might have?
Yes. Sure, I'll repeat all questions in the microphone. So the first question is, would you repeat the question in the microphone? And the answer is yes. <laughs> yes. Good, good. It's like in surgery. You learn one, you see one, and you do one. So, <laughs> I don't know. I hope not. <laughs> okay. Tells you what lack of knowledge I have about this prestigious institution, doesn't it? <laughs> okay, somebody else have a question. Anybody have a question out here? Yes. Your question is an interesting question, and uh, let me repeat it. The question is, what is the World Church doing regarding May 7, which is Ten Commandment Day? I'll give you a little background of that day, and the question does remain whether it will be a big event or not, which is kind of really interesting. Ten Commandment Day had two founders, a fellow by the name of Wexler and a fellow by the name of Blackie Gonzalez. Now, the interesting thing about Ten Commandment Day is this. Ten Commandment Day is a coalition of largely evangelical leaders that are calling for a return to the Ten Commandments, and particularly the placing of Ten Commandments in public places. You remember in Alabama, the Supreme Court ruled that it was unconstitutional to have in the rotunda of the courthouse the Ten Commandment monument. And Judge Moore was actually taken out of his position because of that. There are two men behind the Ten Commandment Coalition. One is a Jewish rabbi who keeps the Sabbath. Now, I've heard some Seventh-day Adventists say, oh, the Ten Commandment Commission is going to lead us down to a Sunday law. Well, the man who organized it, Wexler, that we interviewed on the Hope Channel, is a Jewish rabbi who keeps Sabbath. And Blackie keeps the Sabbath, too, Blackie Gonzalez. He doesn't keep it publicly, but he certainly keeps it in his home. And so both of them have Sabbath backgrounds. So that's rather fascinating. They have gotten together a coalition of uh, people who are pushing for, for the Ten Commandments more popularly put in public places. We've done some checking. Christianity Today is not going to run an article on it at all. They're saying it's a non-event. Charisma, the leading magazine of the Pentecostals, are not going to run an article at all on it. It's a non-event. When we checked out with our evangelical friends, they're saying this is really a non-event and that Adventists are more interested in it than non-Adventists. See, anything that talks about Ten Commandments, Adventists are going to be interested in. So there's more, pop, there's more press in the Adventist media than there is in the non-Adventist media. Now, this thing may turn around in the next month. What most Adventists are not aware of is that three years ago, there was a huge march on Washington for the Ten Commandments as well, a uh, number of thousands. So here's our position as a church. A, the church believes that we need to watch this one carefully, yet we need to take advantage of the opportunity to share the validity of God's law with the world. So officially, here's what the church has done. Number one, um, I've written a, a, a small pamphlet on the truthfulness of God's law. Oh, yeah, thank you, sister, that's good. I didn't even tell her to bring it. 
taking a stand for the Ten Commandments. We're passing these out by the thousands, and Pacific Press published it. We've just released a new book called The Ten Commandments, written by one of our scholars, Warren Wade, uh, who, um, and the, by the Review and Herald, that's being circulated. Uh, on the Hope Channel, we have uh, interviewed Blackie Gonzalez and Wexler, uh, and we've taken them on and interviewed them on that. We also, as a church, just yesterday here on this campus, a group of us from biblical research, from um, the biblical research of the General Conference, from the um, Religious Liberty Department of the GC, myself and some of our others, met together. We released, we prepared a carefully crafted statement that will be released to the press, and it will be released uh, in our journals and publications. We want to look beyond May 7th because May 7th is going to come and go, but we want to plug in to the interest on the Ten Commandments that's taking place today. Do you know in the last two years, five scholarly books have been written by non-Adventists on the Ten Commandments. So there is a resurgence of interest in the Western world in the Ten Commandments. Seventh-day Adventists want to be in the forefront of that. And thank you for the, for the question. We're taking every advantage. Three Angels Broadcasting is in uh, this uh, Washington, May 7th, having a broadcast, 17 hours, I think, on the Ten Commandments. Okay? Yes, some more questions. Yes. Thank you for the question. It's practical. It's where you live. And let me repeat the question. Tell me your first name again. Rachel, Rachel is doing um, private practice at, a, not private practice, a residency at a secular hospital that prides itself in secularism. And so, the, how does she do this? Uh, you know, it, as Rachel is in her residency, what does she do? Pray a lot. <laughs> I don't think, Rachel, there are any really easy answers. I think as you pray, the Lord is going to help you to be sensitive what to say, when to say it, and how to say it. What I would say to you, though, is do not deny yourself with that opportunity. If you ask the right questions and a patient asks you, then you are not violating their freedom of choice. And if a professor, if a, if a, if a, superior ever asked you, you could simply say to them, my patient asked me about this. So there are questions that you can ask. You can ask a question like this, and I'll give you two or three questions to ask that are non-religious questions but get religious responses. You have a patient. What's your, what's your residency going to be in again? Okay, you have a patient. You have a parent that you have to talk to that's just lost a child. And you're sitting there in the waiting room, and mom is weeping. And tenderly you reach out and touch her and say, Mom, where do you find your source of strength? That's a question. Where do you find your source of strength? And she says to you, I wish my faith were stronger in God. And you say, personally, I'm a Christian physician. Would it offend you if I just prayed with you. So you see the gentleness of it. You know, by asking that question, where do you find your source of strength, it opens things up quite significantly. 
Another question that you can ask in a, in a situation like that is this. I know this must be really troubling for you, but where do you see God in, in all of this? Now that's much more direct, but sometimes a person will say, I don't know, I'm just so lost in all this. Does it really trouble you? Oh, the other question you can ask is, even before that question, it'll get you to that same question, is um, you ask the one question, where do you find your source of strength? And you ask, have you ever wondered why something like this may have happened to you? See, that's a non-religious question. Have you ever wondered? And the person will say, oh, I don't know where God is in all this. Then that opens it up. So the two questions that are non-religious questions are, where do you find your source of strength? And your second question may be, that, that opens things up quite broadly, is the question I've just posed on um, why is it, do, do you ever wonder why something like this may happen? You know, does it trouble you that something like this could happen to you? And those open up huge opportunities and you have then permission. So what I would say in a secular institution particularly, be sure you have the person's permission before you move ahead. Okay? There was a question back here. Yes. question. Thank you for asking it. Two things. First, God wants to use you in the sphere of influence that you are with the people where you are. And so you have the great joy of revealing Jesus and sharing his grace where you are. Because the people that you come in contact with are just as critical as the people that anybody else comes in contact with to know Jesus. So first, it's a personal commitment on your part to say, Lord, use me where I am and God can. Secondly, the Lord may put in your heart the desire to begin to help. And there is the story in the Bible of the widow's might, where the widow gave what she had, and God blessed that significantly. So start small in giving, and if, you, if God prompts you to give $5 to an organization, like Amen, the Adventist Medical Evangelistic Network, or anything else God prompts you to do, start small and give from your littleness, and God will bless you because of that. And one day, if you begin to give that which is small, one day you're going to be giving that which is large. But it's not the amount we give, it's the spirit in which we give. Okay? Somebody else? Yes?
Doug, that is a really a good point, and it is a point that should be well taken, and uh, I'm glad you came back to it because I really had missed it, and that is, Rachel, one thing that I really should have said to you is that you will not be alone in that hospital. God will plant other Christians in that hospital that you will find some affinity with, and Doug, that's, that's a real good point. You had a question, Doug? You're very true. The, when people deal, when people face trauma in their life, there is more of an openness in their spiritual life. And uh, I do think, though, that dentists have an opportunity to see people in their office as they come in on a regular basis. And as you develop friendship and bonding with them, one of the things that I often do when I'm dealing with people, my wife is a master at this. Um, my wife has had three of her hairdressers baptized and one barber. <laughs> She's had three hairdressers baptized and one barber. And it's, it's, it's kind of a funny story, and I, and I will tell it to you, and then I'll come back to it. My wife, a number of years ago, and some of you have heard me tell this story, my wife, a number of years ago, went to the barber. My son was only 10 years old now. He's 28. He was, no, he was less than that then, probably eight. And he is 28 now, so it's 20 years ago. And Tini went into the barber, and uh, the barber was talking. There were three barbers, and one was talking to the other one, and a guy came in and sat in the chair, and the guy began reading the newspaper. And he said to the barber, my, everything you read in the newspaper is lousy. It's terrible. He said, it scares me half out of my wits. And the barber actually said to him, if you think the newspaper is scary, you should read that book of Revelation in the Bible. I've never read anything so scary in all my life. He said, the other day I was trying to read it, and all I read about was all these beasts. So my wife came home, and she said, Mark, you've got to go to get a haircut. And I said... What are you talking about? I've got to get a haircut. I got one two weeks ago. I don't need a haircut. She said, Mark, that guy's a hot interest. If you don't go down there, he's going to cool off. You've got to get a haircut. So I actually went down to get a haircut, and there were three people uh, cutting hair. There was a, a woman and an old guy and the young guy. My wife said, it's the young guy in the left chair. You've got to talk to him about the book of Revelation. He's hot now. So I went in there and sat in there, and, my, and the, 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 the barber on the left, the old guy, finished first, and he came over and said, can I cut your hair? I said, no, thank you. I'm waiting for that young guy. He said, do you know him? I said, no, I don't, but my wife recommended him. And so finally, I went over and sat down, and I said, if the other guy picked up the paper, and, and so I just picked up the paper, and I said, boy, everything you read in this paper is scary. <laughs> and the guy kind of looked at me, and he said the same thing he said to the other guy an hour before. He said, mister, if you think that newspaper is scary, you've never read the book of Revelation. That's scary. And I said, well, what scares you about it? He said, all those beasts, that's what scares me. I said, what about the beasts scares you? He said, they're always coming up out of the sea, they're breathing out fire. He said, that's terrible. I said, did you ever read the last chapter? He said, no, I didn't read the last chapter, couldn't get to it. I said, well, if you read, I was too scared. I said, well, if you read the last chapter, you wouldn't be so scared. He said, do you know anything about Revelation? I said, well, I read it once or twice. Okay, you know, you don't want to be too anxious when you get a good one on the... You know, you, the fisherman fishes, he doesn't yank the thing like this, he pulls the hook out of his mouth. So you, so you reel him in slowly. So we began to talk a little bit about Revelation. I talked to him about hope that there is in Jesus. And he said, Ma, you know a little bit about Revelation. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll make a deal with you. I said, I will go home and get some tapes, 
and I'll let you listen to a couple tapes. In about three weeks, let's get it together. But I said, you know, it's hard to talk in the barbershop, so by three weeks, my hair is going to be long. So I'll tell you what we're going to do. If you will cut my hair from free at my house, I'll give you Bible studies at my house. You know, I'm a preacher. You've got to figure out everything as a preacher. No, the reason I did that is because, remember, Jesus asked for a favor. He asked the woman for it. Well, and the guy said, you'll give me a Bible study for free if I cut your hair? I said, yeah, I will. So we began Bible studies. He was baptized. Now, he was 28 at the time. He's 48 today. And I want to tell you about this guy. I talked to him last week. He has just been accepted at 48 to do one of the most physically difficult things in America. He is doing a, what's called the bad water run. You start in Death Valley and you run 130 some odd miles, I think up to Mount Whitney, don't you? You start at the lowest place and you run to the highest place. He's preparing for that by running 50 to 75 miles at a clip. He starts running in his practice after Sabbath at 7, 7.30 at night and he runs all Sabbath, all Saturday night and onto Sunday morning. And he's saying to me, Mark, pray for me because I'm one of the only ones in the world that's been accepted for this run. And I guess the run is coming up pretty soon and he's practicing it. He is the guy I met in the barber shop that was scared over the book of Revelation. So there are people all around. So, you know, you're sensitive to them. There's an earthquake that occurs, and you use that as a springboard. You're a dentist, and they can't talk back anyway. And so, you know, so, but you just make little comments. We call it throwing out the bait. You see if they're interested. And you're just openly spiritual. You say, you know, I was so concerned when that earthquake over in Turkey killed 50,000 people. And you see the way they respond. You talk about it a little bit. And you say, you know, to me, there must be something beyond this life. And you leave it. You do not go any further. You leave it. But if they pick up on it, then you begin to dialogue. So constantly, you don't break relationships to to cram spiritual gluten steaks down their, their, their throat. You can kill a baby with Loma Linda gluten sticks. You take a baby three days old and you feed him Loma Linda gluten, what's going to happen? What's wrong with that Loma Linda gluten? Nothing. But you just try to cram it down a, a baby's throat, right? So you constantly are who you are and you're constantly sharing, but you're looking for opportunities to share more if they give you permission. I'm going to take one more question, then you guys got to go home and study, because if you fail that test tomorrow this week, I don't want to get blamed. It's because you didn't study. Okay. Who else? Any more questions? Yes. Question is, what impact is GYC having on the church? First, I have been deeply impressed with GYC. Students are praying, they're studying, they're sharing God's word. It's wonderful to go to a place where you can open the Bible and share God's word. And so I deeply appreciate GYC. Um, my feeling is this. GYC is growing rapidly. One of the things that we need to be, be sure of is it stays on target. It is not a parachurch group. It's a group of young people that are hot in the heart and center of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And it's important to keep it that way. We need to be sure that the GYC constantly stays faithful to the ideals of Christ, to Scripture, and it's incredibly loyal to the principles of the Adventist church, that it's not some parachurch movement, but it's, it's in the heart of what the church is all about. And for that reason, I, I deeply appreciate it. Okay, I'll take one more question. Any more? It's time to go home. Let's stand up and pray. Father, thank you for the group that has come tonight. I pray, Lord, for every medical student, every physician, every resident, 
everyone that's in their internship. Pray for each one that is in a paramedical profession. Father, I thank thee for this institution where godly medical missionary physicians can be trained. I thank thee for these students who have a passion to do something more than treat disease because they recognize that even if you give a person seven or ten more years life and you don't give them eternity, what have you really done? Father, may we have the unselfish ministry of Jesus that ministers to people physically, mentally, spiritually. Teach us how to introduce spiritual modalities into the hearts and lives of our patients. Help us to see scripture as a healing bomb, that there is a bomb in Gilead that heals the soul. Help us to see that the healing of the mind and the healing of the body go together, and that you cannot separate from that spiritual principles. So, dear Jesus, teach us the ways that we don't yet understand how to integrate spirituality into our practice. Lord, you be our teacher. You were the great medical missionary. You were the one that ministered to the bodies and minds and souls of men and women. And we just long to be like Jesus. So send us from this place with that greater desire. In his name we pray thee. Amen.